Let me begin by saying that I was surprised when Tussman called on me. We had never been close friends. The man's mercenary instincts repelled me. And since our bitter controversy of three years before, when he attempted to discredit my evidences of Nahuatl culture in Yucatan, which was the result of years of careful research, our relations had been anything but cordial. However, I received him and found his manner hasty and abrupt, but rather abstracted, as if his dislike for me had been thrust aside in some driving passion that had hold of him. His errand was quickly stated. He wished my aid in obtaining a volume in the first edition of von Junst's Nameless Cults, the edition known as the Black Book, not from its color, but because of its dark contents. He might almost as well have asked me for the original Greek translation of the Necronomicon, though since my return from Yucatan I had devoted practically all my time to my avocation of book collecting. I had not stumbled onto any hint that the book in the Dusseldorf edition was still in existence. It's time to go back to the library, armed with charms and wards, because we got us a spooky book story. HPPodcraft.com You know, I've tried to use that black book line before from the opening there. Really? But I could never really pull it off. I've, I'll, like, I'll put on a red shirt and be like, how do you like my black shirt? And then the store clerk or whatever will be like, but that's a red shirt. And I'll say, it's not black from its color, but because of its dark content. <laughs> and then the clerk's like, what? You, I, I don't know what you mean. You're clearly a white guy. And I'll go, no, no, no. I mean, my soul is black and my soul's under the shirt. Get it? And the clerk will be like, fine, you know, but you should put on some pants over that soul too, because you're freaking out the other customers. And then, you know, people just don't know how to be fun anymore. You know what I mean? I mean, let's just yeah. have some fun, you know? Just yeah. have, we'll just have a good time. I know. You know who gets it? You know who really gets it? Our reader today. That's who gets it. Yeah, that's right. Courtesy of HP Lovecraft Historical Society, it is Mr. Sean Branny. Sean Branny, coming back after, I don't think he's read for us since that original set of episodes we did on HP Lovecraft. Oh so gosh. it's good to have him back. Those folks over there at the HP Lovecraft Historical Society have just released a new Dark Adventure Radio Theater production of one of my favorite stories. Yours too, I think. The Haunter of the Dark. No, I hate that story. Aww. No, I'm kidding. I love it. Yes. Well, the production, the radio production, that was a good joke. It's exciting. It's uh, spooky. And when you pick up the CD, you get all those delicious props they always serve up. Oh, it's so good. It's so delicious. So go check it out. Quick reminder, I want folks to know that Quiet and Bold Episode 1 Part 2 is out. Yes, it is out and it's and it's amazing. It's amazing, but it's also amazing because we've got in some Chad Pfeiffer. That's right. I'm in there to, to, to bust your chops a little bit. You're, you're my nemesis That's right. in the show. Yes. Pretty exciting. Finally. <laughs> hey, I'd also like to mention that my album Fear the Boys with Bugs is still out. Oh my God. Good rock and roll action. It's at chadpfeiffer.bandcamp.com. We just have so much for y'all to listen to. Enough about us. Uh, what yes. the heck is this story we're reading? This story is called The Thing on the Roof and it is by Robert E. Howard because yes, it's Robert E. Howard. Our month. Do you lie? Before the excerpt we heard, there is actually a poem, and I will read this poem to you. It says, They lumber through the night with their elephantine tread. I shudder in affright as I cower in my bed. They lift colossal wings on the high gable roofs, which tremble to the trample of their mastodonic hoofs. And that is by Justin Joffrey, 
and the poem is called Out of the Old Land. Sounds like a like a vocal warm-up. Oh yeah, kind of. It does, doesn't it? Which tremble to the trample of their mastodonic hoofs. <laughs> it's like to sit in solemn <laughs> silence on a dull, dark dock. It's like got that same kind of uh, yeah, vocal warm-up uh, cadence. I had to look up this author because I'd never heard of him before. Uh, did you recognize mm-hmm. Justin Joffrey? It tickled at the back of my brain, but I wasn't exactly sure. Well, it's actually a pen name, and the pen name is of an author that went by another name called Robert E. Howard. Aha! <laughs> so Howard quoted himself in his story. Quoted his own poem. Well, it was because Howard was really into poetry. It was something that his mom got him into at an early age, but he never really had any success with it. He didn't, although usually there's a couple of odd poems included in his anthologies, the Conan anthologies I've read, and, mm-hmm. and they're good. Yeah. You know, they are actually really cool. And I liked that. I liked that poem at the beginning. And Justin mm-hmm. Jeffrey, it's more, by the way, this is Robert E. Howard month all month. I think everybody listening knows that. But Oh, uh, my God. It's through lie. Justin Jeffrey is more than a pen name. It's also a character, though, that appears in a couple of Howard stories, including the Black Stone, which we've covered. That's right. And that's why it was kind of tickling at the back of my brain, I think. He's a, he is a mad poet. We know that his talent for poetry began manifesting when he was only 10 after an experience at a mysterious house in New York. His parents were visiting friends in town, and uh, Jeffrey went fishing with some other boys when he got lost. He was later found sleeping in a grove of oak trees next to a large abandoned house. Mm -hmm. Besides his dark and often horrifying poems, Justin Joffrey also exhibited interest in the darker areas of knowledge of the world. It is probable that he had read von Junze's Unaussprechlichen Kulten mentions several of the same themes he wrote about in his poetry. We're going to get into that book once again today. Yes. It is also recorded that Justin Jeffrey visited the Blackstone in Hungary 10 years before his death in an asylum, also Mm -hmm. something that will be referenced in this story. He wrote one of his more famous works, The People of the Monolith, about the Blackstone. And it has been a conjecture of many more wild thinkers that Justin Jeffrey's ultimate madness and death in the asylum was due to a night he spent at the base of the Blackstone. Yes. His life was of some interest to occult investigators, John Conrad, and John Kirawan. It's all coming together, man. Yeah, we met them last week. So those guys were in our last story, and uh, Jeffrey doesn't appear in the story, but Unash Spreklik and Colton, or Nameless Cults, sure does, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the inclusion of that poem as an epigraph kind of ties the whole thing together. We are in Howard's mythos world. Bolan. We're glad to be here. Also, the, t- <laughs> also the topic of that poem is some kind of creature with giant wings and hooves, which is pretty scary, but there probably yeah. won't be any wings or hooves or anything like that in this story. Nah. Let's dig in. The story starts off with our narrator talking about this guy, Tusman, that he knows. They aren't really friends, but more academic adversaries. The narrator published a paper that Tusman ripped to shreds. You know, if you're going to be writing about Nahua culture in the Yucatan, you'd be, you better be ready for some bros to come at you. That's all I can say. <laughs> he should have known better. It's an edgy topic. <laughs> this guy Tusman has come to the narrator asking him to help him find a copy of the first edition of Von Jens's Naples Cults, a.k.a. The Black Book. This book is very rare, and we get a lot of history on The Black Book mm-hmm. in the story. The Black Book is nutty. It's poorly written, and the author was labeled as an insane person. Like my books. <laughs> he was a guy that uh, really did go all over the world, and he explored all types of weird, strange things, all, all manner of oddities. He's well-traveled. And I'm sure you remember he locked himself in a room where he was strangled to death. Hmm. Like he was killed by a ghost or some kind of spirit or something like that. Uh, And that strangulation happened in 1840. It's not as old as many of these other occult tomes. Right. And we've encountered this book plenty of times. It's basically Howard's Necronomicon. Yes. Yeah. With the author dying in a similar way to Abdul Al-Hazrin. Five years after his death, a London printer called Bridewall uh, printed the thing, but they edited it like crazy, uh, maximizing its shockability. 
then it says, uh, for sensational effect full of grotesque woodcuts and riddled with misspellings, faulty translations, and the usual errors of a cheap and unscholarly printing. This ripoff gave the original an even worse reputation than it already had. Full of misspellings. That's the worst. Uh, luckily, in 1909, a new edition of Nameless Cult uh, was brought out by Goblin Press. Now, this version had all the questionable parts kind of taken out and some fancy illustrations were added, making it more of an art book than a mythos tome. And it cost so much to make as well that it was really expensive, so it didn't sell very well. Uh, now, Tussman said he has a copy of this uh, golden book, a uh, golden goblin book, uh, which has a certain line that caught his eye. <laughs> Dude, certain pops up so many times in the story. It's everywhere. I don't get it. Like, why is certain? I don't know. It sounds cool. Robert Black, remember we got on his butt for using this all the time too, but if you're writing a mythos story, it's a certain thing that you can't say what it is, but at least it's specific. I don't know. It's everywhere. Tussman says that a certain line caught his eye. Now he wants the original 1839 version to see if there is more on this bit that he's interested in. Tussman said to the narrator that if he would help him, that Tussman would publish a retraction of his criticisms of the narrator's paper. Uh, This flabbergasts the narrator because that kind of thing would make Tussman look unprofessional which means he really wants a copy of this book. And since the narrator had a lot of free time on his hands at this point in his life, he said, you know, yeah, I'm up for it. And Tussman got really excited about it. Yeah, he's like, you don't even need to print the retraction. Don't worry about it. I'll I'll help you. It takes the narrator three months, but he finally finds a guy who has a copy of the book in Virginia. Now, I'm a little confused because he says that the book comes to London, so I guess the narrator lives in London. Yeah. And then Tussman comes to London to check out the book. As he looks at it, he said, his eyes burned avidly as he gazed at the thick, dusty volume with its heavy leather covers and its rusty iron clasps. And his fingers quivered with eagerness as he thumbed the time-yellowed pages. He loves it. Tussman reads over the book, then pounds his fist on the table and tells the narrator he found what he was looking for. He reads out a bit from the book, and it talks about this old temple in Honduras, in the jungle, with a strange god that was worshipped by the people that lived there before the Spaniards came. Inside, there's this mummy who was the last high priest of this religion, and he had around his neck a copper chain with a red jewel that was carved into the shape of a toad. This jewel, according to the book, was the key to the treasure that lay hidden in the crypt below the temple's altar. I have seen that temple. I have stood before the altar. I have seen the sealed-up entrance of the chamber in which, natives say, lies the mummy of the priest. It is a very curious temple, no more like the ruins of the prehistoric Indians than it is like the buildings of the modern Latin Americans. The Indians in the vicinity disclaim any former connection with the place. They say that the people who built that temple were a different race from themselves, and that they were there when their own ancestors came into the country. I believe it to be a remnant of some long-vanished civilization which began to decay thousands of years before the Spaniards came. I would have liked to have broken into the sealed-up chamber, but I had neither the time nor the tools for the task. I was hurrying to the coast, having been wounded by an accidental gunshot in the foot, and stumbled onto the place purely by chance. Shot in the foot? Yeah, he shot himself in the foot. That's one of the more interesting ways one of our characters has discovered a, a dark secret. Hey, now, he doesn't say he was he shot himself in the foot. He said it was an accidental gunshot. That's true. It doesn't mean that he was the one that made the mistake. It could have been some other joker cleaning his gun, and then it went off and yeah. shot him in the foot. He's like, ah, oh, my footage is, can you scratch it with your gun? <laughs> Blam! 
<laughs> well, however it happened, it is an interesting way to discover a dark secret. Yes. And it's one of the more interesting that we've heard. I feel like we can make a chart of things to do. You know, rent abandoned ma- mansion is way up there. Yeah. Uh, respond to summons from an isolated friend always is mm-hmm. going to lead to a dark secret. Or sure, yeah. take a vacation to get some solitude and do some scholarly work. Mm-mm. Perfect. Always a good way to discover a dark secret. Shoot yourself in the foot. Put that on the list. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking of the, about it in those terms because there's a list online that's a little off topic. but And maybe I've mentioned it before, but it's called the Hulk Out List. No. And it's a fan of the old Incredible Hulk television show okay. that lists out all the reasons that David Banner turned into the Hulk okay. in the old television show. And it's really fantastic. It, well, because he was angry. Well, it was always because he was angry, but what happened to make him angry? Okay. And it starts fairly simply like, number one, problems with flat tire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's in the, that's in the opening of the show. Yeah. Number two, nightmare. What makes him turn the Hulk? Whoa. Number three, thinking about either of his wives. That'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, he had more than one wife? I guess so. Then it gets awesome. Like number 19, being pushed down a mountainside by a Bigfoot impersonator. (laughs) 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 Number 23, being trampled by a crowd and having the hot coffee spilled on his hand while trying to get to the sniper. (laughs) What? What? Number 24, being tied up and fed soup by an elderly Japanese woman who doesn't understand words like, you've got to cut me loose. (laughs) Number 28, being placed in a dumpster by the two garbage men who think he's a thief and who don't believe him when he says, hey, there are rats in here. And then being bitten by the rats to add injury and insult. (laughs) I actually remember that episode. I remember this one, number 44, kicking over a beehive and then being surprised when the bees are mad at him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't remember that. I remember that episode really well. Oh, golly. Number 48, helping Ray Walston out with a magic trick by allowing himself to be chained up and put in a tank of water only to find that drunk Ray has forgotten to leave the escape key inside the tank. <laughs> what? I love that because it's so specific, but also did Ray Walston go, all right, I'll do the show, but you have to acknowledge my drinking problem. You know, like, how did that come about? <laughs> uh, they're all so good. I'll link out in the show notes. Sorry to travel down that off-ramp for a minute, but it's... That's fine. Uh, I love it so much. It's beautiful. The important thing is that he's, uh, that Tussman has actually seen a place referenced in this black book. So Tussman says that he came across the Golden Goblin copy of the book, which has some stuff about this temple in there, but the mummy was only briefly mentioned, and the book said that the Temple of the Toad uh, was in Guatemala and not Honduras. His book said that the gem was a key, but to what? He's not Mm. sure. Now, Von Juntz, uh, he actually went there as well, which is kind of crazy that he was, you know, hanging out there in the mid-1800s. Somehow got past the sealed main chamber and into the place with the mummy. Again, how, it doesn't say, but Von Juntz and Tussman are the only white guys to have ever set foot in this place. Some Spanish guy called Juan Gonzalez got there, uh, but not to the main temple part of it. Mm-hmm. The local spoke of something unusual hidden in the temple, but again, not specific. He calls it the Temple of the Toad. So mm-hmm. we know we're going to have a bunch of toad imagery again. Yes. Do you think that Howard was specifically freaked out by toads? It just comes up so often. Yeah, I think he was really grossed out by toads. Are you freaked out by toads? Not in the slightest. No, not at all? No. I held frogs and toads. They're, they're amphibians. I mean, they're kind of... Eh, but yeah. no, I'm not freaked out by him. Well, that screws up my prank. All right. <laughs> so Tusman said that he has all he needs. He's off. He, he takes off for Central America right away. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, after he left, the narrator continued to keep reading this black book because even though he let him read it, it's still his book. He's you know yeah. holding on to it. And he said, I found pertaining to the Temple of the Toad certain things, <laughs> again, which disquieted me so much 
But the next morning, I attempted to get in touch with Tussman, only to find that he had already sailed. I wonder what he found out in the book. I don't know. It's, it seems like after all that trouble that Tussman went through to get the book, he would want to read more of it. You know, not yeah. just that. That's like going to see Pet Cemetery and leaving after the first five minutes. Yeah, the family seemed really nice and happy with their move, so I just figured that was the rest of the story. So. <laughs> no. I don't get why people were scared. I mean... <laughs> A few months later, the narrator gets a letter from Tussman asking him to visit his estate, which is in Essex, I believe, and bring the black book with him. And at that point, I started to wonder, are we going to have a whisperer moment here? You know, it's like, uh, bring the black book with you and all the <laughs> correspondence that we shared. Exactly. Be sure not to tell anybody you're visiting. And bring something I can bury you in. I mean, uh, something comfortable to wear. <laughs> uh, when he gets to the estate, it's just after nightfall and it's a creepy old place with ivy growing up all on it. And as he's going up to the house, he hears the sound of like a big ox or something blundering around the grounds, specifically the the sound of hooves on stone. I think that there's just like a rehearsal going on for Monty Python's The Holy Grail (laughs) in the backyard. It's just people knocking coconuts together. Coconuts, that's all it is, man. The servant answers the door. He's suspicious. Did not Tussman notify him that he was expecting a guest? I don't know. know. Guess not. But he lets the narrator in and Tussman is there. He says Tussman's giant frame is leaner and harder than he was when he last saw him. Which made me laugh because even the scholars in Conan's stories, you know, have iron thews. <laughs> they do. He asked Tussman if he found his gold, to which Tussman says, Pah, there's no gold. There wasn't anything. But he's got the jewel and he shows the stone to the narrator. Right. It was a great jewel, clear and transparent as crystal, but of a sinister crimson, carved, as von Nunes had declared, in the shape of a toad. Ah. I shuddered involuntarily. The image was particularly repulsive. Maybe it was mm. like kind of licking his lips suggestively. Maybe that was what was <laughs> repulsive about it. The chain also has some writing on it, but it's in some strange language that Tusman didn't recognize, but hoped the narrator would. Uh, he doesn't. Tusman says that they are similar to certain partially defaced hieroglyphics on a monolith known as the Black Stone in the Mountains of Hungary. So, Boom. again, that so connects to that story. Up in Hungary. Well, actually, it's Transylvania uh, where the Black Stone is. It used to be in Hungary, oh. and then the borders moved. But. Oh. There's a cool uh, little article from Ken Height where he links it to uh, Dracula. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, we've put that in the show notes if you I will. find it. I will. Uh, so, Tuspin gives some details on his trip. He says, uh, the temple is built against a sheer stone cliff in a deserted valley unknown to maps. It has extreme weathering, which suggests it has an incredible age. Is extreme weathering like skateboarding in a tornado? Is that what that is? (laughs) Extreme! Give me a Mountain Dew, man! He also says, most of the columns which form its facade are in ruins, thrusting up shattered stumps from worn bases like the scattered and broken teeth of some grinning hag. That was pretty good. I agree. Uh, The main chamber is a large circular affair with a floor composed of great squares of stone. In the center stands the altar, merely a huge, round, curiously carved block of the same material. Directly behind the altar, in the solid stone cliff which forms the rear wall of the chamber, is the sealed and hewn-out chamber wherein lie the mummy of the temple's last priest. He finds the mummy with the jewel, just as it was in the book, The narrator notes something strange, however. Tusman's story at this point starts to get really vague. So much detail in the first, you know, like I was reading there. But then it's just like, uh, and then I got some stuff and then I left. And it's like, huh? Like, what's, is he hiding something? 
Did he do something to that mummy? Is that what's going on? He doesn't want to talk about it, yeah. In his vagueness, he says that he uses the key to open up the door. Doesn't say how he did that, just as he does. And he goes in, but the locals that are with him, he's you know, some guides that he has, won't go anywhere near it. They won't go inside. So he goes down by himself with his pistol and a flashlight. A lot of this seems like a bit of a duller retread of the fire of Astrobanipal. Yes, yeah. Without the action element. Uh, There are a lot of tunnels, and this little frog is hopping just ahead of him, uh, ahead of his light as he's going. So he can keep seeing the frog, and it just keeps going away from him. Finally, he finds this huge, heavily carved door where one would think all the gold would be. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, this is the big, heavy door to the treasure. Awesome. And then he somehow knows to do this. He presses the toad jewel around it and one of his pressings opens the door. And he says something strange. He says, uh, there was no gold there, no precious gems, nothing. He hesitated. Nothing that I could bring away. Uh-huh. So there's no, there's no treasure, but there was something else. The narrator notes that he jumps ahead in his story at this point about the return and it doesn't say anything else. When he got out of those tunnels, when he came up out of the pits, the mummy was just gone. And so he assumed that the superstitious natives that were with him, they threw it away or they dumped it into a well or a cavern or something. He laments the lack of treasure, but the narrator points out, hey, man, he got the jewel. And Tuspin looks in the book to see if there's any indication of what the stone is made of. You know, is it ruby? Is it quartz? What is it? But then he shook his head as if puzzled, and I noticed him dwell long over a certain line. (laughs) Again! Tuspin says that Von Yuntz messed with so many dark things, no wonder he was strangled by a ghost. Best to leave sleeping things. Uh And then it says this, Aye, sleeping things, he muttered that seem dead, but only lie waiting for some blind fool to awaken them. I should have read further in the black book, and I should have shut the door when I left the crypt, but I have the key, and I'll keep it in spite of hell. Okay, so why does he want the key if he's already used it? I don't understand his motivation to keep it. I think maybe maybe he knows that some bad's coming for him, and he just doesn't care. Or just, I guess, because that's the only treasure he could have gotten. I mean, his whole thing is uh, yeah. motivated by treasure, you know. Yeah. That's yeah. all he cares about, so. He didn't read his as much of the book as he should have. That's clear at this point. Mm-hmm. Just as he's about to talk more, there's a strange sound and he looks up. The narrator doesn't really hear it, but obviously Tusman does. And he calls the servant in and he goes, did you hear anything? And the servant says, yeah, from upstairs. And he goes, you're not going to believe this. I know. I sound like a crazy guy. Pretty, It's pretty zany, but I, I could have sworn there was a horse up on the roof. Ha! <laughs> Huh? And then Tusman is like, what? Ah, get out, you fool. Get out of here. So Tusman grabs the stone and he says, I've been a fool, he raved. I didn't read far enough. I should have shut the door. But by heaven, the key is mine and I'll keep it in spite of man or devil. I wonder, too, if anybody, did they check the calendar? Because it might be Christmas. Could be Christmas. That could, Hello. That could be, that could be reindeer on the roof. <laughs> I would I would check the calendar. So he runs off upstairs, and the narrator just sort of hangs out in the library for a while. He then goes, well, you know, I, I, I would have left if it wasn't so late at night. He just goes up to the room where he was assigned. You know, the, the servant gave him a room earlier. So he just goes up to there, and he stays in bed and reads a bit of the book. So the narrator reads a little bit more about the Temple of the Toad and the ancient people that lived there, and they worshipped a huge, tittering, tentacled, hooved monstrosity. Reading what Von Yuntz had said again, he goes over it again. It says, the key is to the treasure. And the treasure was not gold or or riches or gems or anything like that. The treasure is the creature slash god that these people worshipped. And he says, oh, no. And the dark implication of the hint struck me and cold sweat beaded on my forehead. Just then he hears a crash. 
and a scream, a death scream, he says, whatever that sounds like. Ow, it hurts. Ow. Okay. Ow. (laughs) In an instant, I was out of the room, and as I dashed up the stairs, I heard sounds that have made me doubt my sanity ever since. At Tussman's door, I halted, saying with shaking hand to turn the knob. The door was locked, and as I hesitated, I heard from within a hideous, high-pitched tittering, and then the disgusting, squashy sound as if some great jelly-like bulk was being forced through the window. The sound ceased, and I could have sworn that I heard a faint swish of gigantic wings. Then, silence. Gathering my shattered nerves, I broke down the door. A, A foul and overpowering stench billowed out like yellow mist. Gasping in nausea, I entered. The room was in ruins, but nothing was missing except for that crimson toad-carved jewel Tussman called the key, and that was never found. A foul, unspeakable slime smeared the windowsill, and in the center of the room lay Tussman, his head crushed and flattened, and on the red ruin of skull and face, the plain print of an enormous hoof. The old hoof in the face. Dang. That's the end of the story. That is the end. It's kind of like the unnameable a little bit, right? Oh, right, yeah. They're talking about that monster, and then they they pass out, and they wake up with hoof prints all over them. That's right, yeah, yeah. And I remember the end of that. It was like, it was everywhere. A gelatin, a slime, yet it had shapes. A thousand shapes of horror beyond all memory. I, You know, that kind of sounds similar to this description. Yeah, it does, it does. And it, man, that is a freaking ghastly, gory description. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a Howard for you. You know, it's very, very violent. Not, not, not much left to the imagination. No, this was also related to our uh, Dig Me No Grave, and then it kind of has the underpinnings of the, the hound story structure. Yeah, it does. And when I got the thing, there was a monster. The monster knows where I live. It's got my address, and so the monster comes by and, hey, give me that thing back, and then no, and then you get a hoof print to the head. <laughs> <laughs> the old hound story structure. So what do you think? Did you like this one? I Actually, yeah, I did. Oh, good. It's pretty short. As, as you can see, we're already... Um, in the synopsis of the story. Uh, but it's pretty enjoyable. It is sort of by the numbers, but there's some really clever writing. And I, I'm kind of into the whole scary book thing. And maybe this comes from my playing the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game for years and how there are different mm. versions of the book that get done in translations. And mm. to have, I mean, I guess this is probably where it comes from, the Howard stuff, mm-hmm. where it's like the first version of it was the real deal. Then somebody did a translation of it, but then it's really watered down. And then somebody did a translation right. of that and that's super watered down. Practically nothing of value in there for a mythos score. Cthulhu mythos knowledge. <laughs> I don't know. It's really f- fun and interesting. And that, that fictional history, it, it, it engages me and I really like it. Yeah. I mean, this was pretty typical Howard doing Lovecraft. It w- feels like we've had we, the first story of the month was action packed. And then these last two have been a little bit more like slow burners, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. But he's good at doing those. I, of course, main characters still have Robert E. Howard motivation. There's not a lot of Lovecraft stories where the guy wants, they want knowledge, but it's rare that somebody's like, I want treasure. Where's the treasure? I don't care what monsters are down there. I'm getting the treasure, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Howard, Howard protagonists like that. I've got a question for you. What happened to the mummy? What, are you talking in my personal life or? <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's. Well, hold on. I want to. I want to pause my initial question and move yeah. on to the, a new one. Uh-huh. You have a mummy. I did. I don't know what happened to it. I don't know. Did he get up and walk away? Like, oh man, 
now that he unlocked that monster, I'm not going to stick around for this. So there is like this undead shambling mummy in Honduras now, or did he? Yeah, I think did, so. Like taking the the necklace off, you know, bring him to life, or like maybe he was imprisoned there by the necklace, or like that's that doesn't get touched on at all. No, all this is about is that in under the altar there was this tunnel that led to this place where the the this mon- this hoofed creature was. Yeah, this god that they worshipped. But the mummy is just totally sidelined. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is. Yeah, if anybody knows about this mummy, what his current whereabouts are, <laughs> what he's doing, who he's employed by, yeah, please let us know. Let us know. I just want to shoot him an email and see what happened. <laughs> Why didn't Tussman read the whole book? That's so silly. <laughs> it, it, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. That's, just, just from a practical point of view, because what if it had said the treasure is going to be about a ton, so if you come to get it, make sure you have a pick, couple pickup trucks. You know, th- just yeah, exactly. to know what supplies he should bring to get the truck. Or anything. Like, oh, be careful when you go in there, there's booby traps. Or yeah. the treasure is actually the priest's teddy bear that he had when he was <laughs> a kid. And it's like his most beloved object. You know, yeah. it has no worth now, but to him, it had a great sentimental value. Who knows? Any of that information might have been in there. But he didn't read it. He didn't bother. He just got all excited and ginned up and just ran off without even thinking about it. Like, even <laughs> the narrator took some time, read it, and then was like, oh, boy, I don't know if he should do this. Let me get a hold of him. What, he's gone already? Like, he <laughs> he jumped on a ship that quickly. Well, you know, I mean, if this was set in the modern day, I would be a little more understanding of that because people, you know, they read headlines and that's about it, right? <laughs> so Right. If he just had an internet-addled brain. It would make more sense. but uh, So what are we doing next week? Next week, we've got another action-packed one. Uh, no joke. This is called People of the Dark. Ooh. Uh, it has a surprise character appearance in it. You can probably guess it who that'll be, but I don't want to spoil it. We'll be checking that out next week. People of the Dark. People of the Dark. I want to thank our reader, Sean Branny, and mm-hmm. the HP Lovecraft Historical Society for all their amazing work that they do. And check out their adaptation of The Haunter in the Dark. Uh, their adaptations are lots of fun, very enjoyable for uh, people of our ilk. And even non-ilk folks might <laughs> enjoy it as well. Check it out. Uh, also make sure to check out Quiet and Bold Episode 1 Part 2, which is out now. Yes, featuring the dulcet tones of Chad Pfeiffer. Been there for a moment, yeah. And please, do yourself a favor. Probably the best thing you can do for yourself all year is go and download Chad's album, Fear Boys with Bugs. It's, it's good. some great mid-90s punk rock with a lot of passion and just some catchy <laughs> tunes. The catchy tunes, man. The songs are great. Thank you. And yes, please go check it out. It, it's been known to have positive mental effects on all who listen. That's all we've got for this week. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Mm-hmm.